Thanks, Nicholas. And I appreciate those words about the first term. So we know what we have to do, don't we? Jacob Tice is getting ready to go. He's got another week and a half before his uh, launch. So let's be praying for him. But do pray for Nicholas and for his family, for Alyssa and uh, Evangeline and Daniel. And so I hope you will pick up their prayer cards out there. Would you open God's word to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look today at three verses, verse 17, 18, and 19. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. You know, the um, title that we've given the whole series is Follow Me. That's what Matthew is emphasizing, is following Christ. But I think another favorite word that Matthew has in his gospel is the word fulfill, fulfill. You know, I believe that his gospel is such a wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of the things that were prophesied about the Messiah, they were being fulfilled in the New Testament as it describes the life of Jesus Christ. Someone said 300 Old Testament prophecies or predictions were actually fulfilled by Jesus. So what Matthew does I don't know if you're tr sort of tracking him as we've been going through, but Matthew makes some connections and says, you see, what you see happening in Jesus' life was already prophesied hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. For example, I don't know if you noticed when we were in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22, the virgin birth was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14, And then when we went into chapter 2, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, you know, the wise men came and they were saying, where is he going to be born? So they checked with those scholars and they go back to the Old Testament and they said, well, in the book of Micah, it says they'll be born in Bethlehem. And then there was all of these mothers that were weeping and crying because Herod was putting to death their babies. And so even that had been prophesied according to Jeremiah 31, 15. But Matthew is helping us make the connections over and over again. Christ's Galilean ministry was predicted in Isaiah 42, verse 7. It's recorded now in Matthew 4, verses 14 through 16. Even Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, the Old Testament. I came to fulfill, fulfill it. In Matthew 8, 17, Jesus' healing ministry fulfilled Isaiah 53, 4. In Matthew 12, verses 15 and 16, he was going to give hope to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Isaiah said would happen in Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. And it just goes on and on all the way through Matthew. He's constantly saying, this fulfills that. And so I was thinking about how when it comes to Jesus suffering before the cross, when it comes to his death on the cross, we're often tempted to feel so sorry for Jesus we think, well, this must have just been one of those tragic moments when a mob takes over and there's violence done to a good man. But you know what? I believe that his sufferings were not accidental. And that was actually captured in a painting. I want to put that on the screen for you. This painting was painted in 1870 to 1873. It took three years for William Holman Hunt to paint this painting called The Shadow of Death. I don't know if you can see in the background, but Jesus is working as a carpenter in a workshop. He takes a break and he just simply stretches like this. But his silhouette 
is cast behind him on the wall, and there's a tool rack, a wooden tool rack across the back wall, and it has the appearance as though he were hanging on a cross. His shadow was cast across there, and I just thought to myself, the artist is suggesting that the cross was in Christ's shadow all along. Do you believe that Jesus came to this earth for the very purpose to die on the cross? I do believe that. Philippians 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 tell us that he willingly gave up all of his authority and all of the glories in heaven so that he could come and be born as a man, so that he could come and die for our sins. And so now when you come to Matthew chapter 20, you're going to see in verses 17 and 18 and 19 that he was aware. He was aware of his purpose. He was aware of his future. You know, if you look just ahead in, back in Matthew 19, there was a man, other gospels tell us he was a rich man, he was a young man, but nevertheless he was a man, maybe like some men that are here today. And this man was given the opportunity to follow Jesus and he turned it down. He turned it down and so Peter looks and he says, you know, why did that happen? And Jesus said, it's really hard for those who are wealthy to really understand the importance of salvation in the gospel. And so then Peter says, but we have, we've left everything. What will there be for us because we've left everything? And so then we go into chapter 20 where we are. And what's interesting is Jesus teaches this parable, parable of laborers in a vineyard where all of these men are brought to work in this vineyard, but they're brought a little at a time, like three hours separated. So some early in the morning, and then it goes all through the day until finally one crew comes at five o'clock and they quit at six back then. So just think, these guys worked one hour, the others worked all day in the heat. So what was surprising was that whenever it came time for the employer to pay the men, he gave everybody the same amount. And I think it was so surprising and they thought, that's not fair, that's not fair. Do you know that grace isn't fair? It's not fair for me to be able to go to heaven, for me to have my sins forgiven, for me to get to go and be with God for eternity because Jesus died on the cross for me. You see, you don't want what's fair. You don't want what's just. You want grace and you want mercy. And so I think it's such a great setup for what the Lord is about to reveal to his disciples. So if you will, would you stand in honor of God's inerrant word as we look at Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Listen to this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, I thank you that it did not happen suddenly. It's an eternal plan. When you sent your son to this earth to atone for our sins. So help us, O oh Lord, open up our understanding. I pray especially for those who have never trusted Christ. 
those who may say, I'm interested, I just don't understand it. Would you open their understanding and shine the light down in their hearts? Let them see the great love, the mercy and the grace that sent Jesus to this earth. Oh, Lord, help them to know all that you went through just for them. Because, Lord, I came to know you when I was just a freshman in college. And I still stand amazed. I stand amazed that you've redeemed someone like me. Thank you so much. So speak to us this day about the shadow of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's four things I just want to get across to you briefly this morning. First, Jesus knew there was a divine plan for redemption that included his suffering. He knew this. And so he brings it up to the disciples. It says he you know, took them aside. He wanted to look them straight in the eye and tell them, here's what's going to happen, guys. This is the plan. And he knew that the plan included a specific place. And so twice when he talks to those disciples, he said, men, we're going up to Jerusalem. That's where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. Do you know that uh, Zechariah wrote in 519 B.C.? Let that sink in for a moment. 519 B.C., over 500 years before this moment, Zechariah said something. And what he said was, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And so Jesus fulfilled it. If you go to the next chapter, chapter 21, it says just like that. Jesus goes in riding on a donkey with a colt coming behind. Can you imagine can you tell me anything that's going to happen 500 years from now? Is there anything that you know that you could say, you can write it down, it's going to happen in this place. Think about the odds of that happening. That way back 500 years before, says Messiah when he comes, he's not going to ride into Washington. He's not going to ride into Rome. He's not going to ride into Paris or London or any of the other great cities. He's going to ride into Jerusalem. And it happened just like he said. The other thing I want you to know is he knew that the plan also included a specific purpose. You see, this was not a situation that was completely out of control. Do you know that in Revelation 13 and verse 8, it says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world? You see, God had a plan. The cross was not plan B. The cross was God's eternal plan. He knew that we were too broken to save ourselves, to ever work our way into heaven, to ever earn forgiveness. He knew we couldn't do it. And so he planned on sending his son to die on a cross. And if you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus, I mean, Peter's standing up there preaching in Jerusalem. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You crucified him. But let me tell you something. You didn't crucify him, and you didn't corner him and make him do something that he didn't want to do. He knew it was all part of a plan. So if he knew that it was all part of a plan, how do we know that? That leads me to the second part of Matthew chapter 20. Would you drop down now from verse 17 to verse 18? Jesus not only knew the plan, he actually starts giving details about the plan verbally. He starts communicating it to others who could verify he did know it. 
And here's what he's saying to them. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. I'm telling you, he was conscious of upcoming suffering. He said the Son of Man will be delivered over. Do you know that in Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, did you catch it? It says he will be delivered over. Who's delivering over who? Judas is delivering over Jesus. Of course, the father is delivering over his son for this plan, but in many ways, Judas and the chief priests, they agreed on a price so that Judas could betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver, and he's willing to sell out the master. Zechariah, once again, back there 500 years before, in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, he said, someday the Messiah is going to be betrayed. And guess what he said? He's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, isn't that ironic that he would say 500 years before, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be betrayed, and the price will be 30 pieces of silver. Matthew records it so we can know it happened just like God said it was going to happen. Think about how not only that, but Zacharias said they're going to take that money and they're going to throw it into the temple. Do you know what Matthew records? Matthew records Judas throwing that blood money, he says, into the temple in Matthew 27, verse 5. And then it says, way back 500 years before, back in Zechariah, in the prophecy, he says, you know what? I see something else. The Holy Spirit has given me insight. When the Messiah comes, they're going to take that money, and there's something about a potter. And isn't it amazing that Matthew 27, verses 7 through 10 says, they said, what do we do with all this money that Judas gave us back? It's blood money. And so they said, we can't do that. Go out and buy that potter's field. You see what I'm saying? That this is all part of a plan, and Jesus is able to articulate the plan and specifically say, this is what's coming. He knew of the conspiracy behind his suffering because it says in Matthew 20, verse 18, look at it again. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to whom? Well, to the chief priests and the scribes. It wasn't, it wasn't just the secular people. It was the religious people that were in the background trying to set this whole thing up, trying to ensnare him. So think about how that would feel if you were Jesus. Judas betrays you. Peter denies you. The disciples forsake you. And all of these Jewish religious guys that you came to save, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they all say, he's guilty. Let's go ahead and kill him. He knew of that conspiracy. He knew of the conclusion. He said, I know what they're going to do. They're going to come to the end, and they're going to give the verdict at the trial. He's guilty, and they're going to condemn me to death. He knew it was coming. But here's the thing. Now, I want you to think about this. If that was you, if you were in Jesus' place, would you be saying to those around you, I know all this is going to happen, but let's go to Jerusalem. Let's just go to Jerusalem. Can you think of the courage, the courage that it would take to say, I don't care. I don't care if they're all against me. I don't care if they even condemn me to death. I'm going to Jerusalem. We're all going to Jerusalem. He said it twice. Think about how amazing that was, that courage that our Lord had. Well, let's move to verse 19, and let me wrap this up. There was also pain involved. 
Notice that the shadow of pain was also there. He knew it was coming. He talks about it in verse 19, but that's not the only time that he talked about it. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, three different men, three dis different gospel accounts. Do you know that all three of them record Jesus saying, not one time, not two times, three times. This is the third time that Jesus explicitly says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again on the third day. So it's amazing to me that if you go back to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, if you go back to Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, it's the same exact thing that he's saying here in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. He's saying, I know what's ahead, and I'm still willing to go regardless of the pain, regardless of the pain. You know, as a matter of fact, this is the most detailed prophecy that Jesus gave those disciples of his impending suffering. It was going to be painful. I just want to take a brief moment to kind of let us look at the layers of the pain. Let's look at that together. It says, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't a Gentile. So think of the humilia humilia humiliation. Think of the social tension that would have been involved there wherever, whenever they're saying to Jesus, you know what? We can't put you to death, so what we're going to do is we're going to turn you over to the Romans. We're going to turn you over to the Gentiles. Think about how it says in John, he came to his own, and his own knew him not. They didn't receive him. They didn't receive him. So I was thinking about that social tension, but then what about the emotional trauma? The emotional trauma. What does it say next? They delivered him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be mocked. Have you ever been mocked? You know, sometimes I see police officers that are trying to do their job who are mocked by people right there in their face, yelling obscenities and just taunting them and so forth. And I'm thinking, what would it be like to be up there dying on a cross so that people could be forgiven and they're standing at the foot of your cross and they're saying, if you're really the son of God, then why don't you prove it by coming on down? Yeah, just like we thought, you can't do it. Can you, I mean, it'd be so tempting to just make those nails pop out and to jump down there and say, you wanna say that to my face? You know, I mean, that's what we do. But he didn't do that, did he? Isn't it amazing, the emotional trauma whenever it's like that? I mean, this is incredible. But don't you know that Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says, when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, he will be despised. He will be rejected by men. That's what I don't understand sometimes why today as followers of Christ, we think it's an odd thing for people to reject us when he was rejected for us. And I'm thinking, why, why would we be ashamed to stand up for him when he endured all of that emotional trauma of mocking, but that wasn't it. What about the physical torture? What about where it says this word flogged? Flogged. What does that mean, flogged? Well, it was a whip that they used back then, and the whip had all of these different Lord, little strands that went down, and in each strand were tied pieces of bone, pieces of metal. And so the Romans would take it, and they would lash a man's back with this and he received it like 39 times can you imagine what it felt like physically the physical torture of it all 
But I think for Jesus, it was that spiritual twist. It was the spiritual difference, the change that made everything so painful for him. When all eternity passed, he'd been with the Father. And now on the cross, when all of my sins, my ugly old sins, everything I've ever done in rebellion against God, all of that was placed upon Jesus. Every one of our sins. Can you imagine the amount of sin just in this one room? If you count your whole sins, your whole life, all of that was placed on Jesus. Now go ahead and multiply it by the people in Zambia. Multiply it by the people in Japan. Multiply it by the whole world. All the world's sins were placed upon Jesus. Can you imagine one so holy, one so perfect, and all of it? And he says, Father, I don't understand. Why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in all eternity, I mean, he sensed the spiritual separation that happened at his crucifixion. Oh, I'm sure that the nails hurt. I'm sure that when they had that crown of thorns on his head, it hurt. But I'm telling you, what really hurt him the most was that spiritual pain. But I want to close with the power over his suffering because that's how Jesus closed it. He'll be raised on the third day. Three times Jesus explicitly tells them he'll be raised on the third day. He closes that prophecy the same way he did in Matthew 16, in Matthew 17, and now here he comes again, Matthew 20, verse 19, and he will be raised. You know, Paul said in Philippians 3, 10, that the power of the resurrection is something we are to be getting to know and understand. Do you understand how powerful a God is that could raise somebody back from the dead? I got to thinking about what does that mean? And I thought of four different things about his resurrection. The necessity of his resurrection. It says, and he. Why does it say in Acts 2.24 that it was not possible for him to be held in death? I'll tell you why. Because the father looks down there and he sees his perfect son who had never committed one sin. His perfect son had died. And the, the father says, you don't deserve you don't deserve death. People who sin deserve spiritual death. I'm raising you from the dead. And he, he raised the Son of God from the dead. That's why I say, whenever it says, and he, I'm thinking, it had to be the necessity of the resurrection. He didn't deserve death. He deserved life. And I thought about the certainty of his resurrection when he says, and he will be. Jesus didn't tell those disciples, I think this is going to happen. Maybe, I hope this happens. Oh, no. He said, it will be. That's why when he's talking to the disciples in John 10, 17 and 18, he said, look, I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to raise it up again. And I'm thinking, wow, who else do you know? Have you ever met anybody in your life that if they die, they can say, I'll, I'll be raised again. There's no problem here. Think about the certainty but also think about the veracity, the objectivity of his resurrection. When it says, and he will be raised, he will be raised. Think about how many people saw him. Just one place alone, over 500 saw him. But several disciples, they see him over here. And then it says in scripture, they saw him over here. And they saw him here and there. It's over and over again. Why is this listed in scripture? So that you and I will know it's real. God's real. Jesus is real. He's really alive. He can make a difference in your life and mine. It makes a big difference whenever you're nearing the end of your life. 
and there's nothing to look forward to. Or when you look at Jesus and you say, you mean that one right there overcame death? It makes a big difference. You see, I think that whenever he waited till the third day, I think the reason was the impossibility, the impossibility of his resurrection. All my life, I've never known one person to come back out of the grave after three days. Nobody. It's impossible, right? Yes, we would all agree on that. But here's the thing. He did it. He did it, and so many people saw him do it. And what the reason he did it is because he's not like me, and he's not like you, and he's not like anybody you've ever known. That's why you can trust him. He, I'm telling you, he is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He's the risen king. He can change your life. And so that's why I'm just telling you, this is wonderful news. You know, Jesus was right about the Father's plan for redemption. His prophecy was accurate about his arrest, his trials, the verdict of the trials. He told the disciples precisely how painful his suffering would be. Did that happen? Oh, yes, that happened. They didn't fully understand it, but later they learned, boy, he told us the truth about the resurrection. So the question comes for today, in 2020, what comes next? October 25th, 2020, what comes next? Well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, tells us that he left heaven, he became a man, he humbled himself, he obeyed the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. But then what does it say next? Well, it says that right there. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that's what comes next. The exaltation of Christ, the coronation of Christ as King and Lord of Lords. Every knee, every knee, every knee in this building, every knee around the world, every knee, every tongue, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess because we are accountable. We can say, you know what? I just don't really want to follow Christ. I just don't really believe that he rose from the dead. Fine, that's your, that's your freedom that God has given to you. But just know it's not over yet. Because the truth is, we're still accountable to him. Even if we reject his way of salvation, we still have to say, oh, wow. So now I'm in the shadow of the cross. He was in the shadow of the cross and he had to die. But once he died, once he rose again, now you know the way. You know the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So what are you going to do? We have to choose to trust in the finished work of Christ, in his substitutionary death. If we do, we go to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We're placed in a family like this, a family of God. Wonderful things. But if we reject it, I just want you to know 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 warns us, Everybody will not be spending eternity with Jesus in heaven. It says in those verses, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So you see, we have to say yes. We have to say, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. Thank you for dying for me. Have you done that yet? It's not hard. All you have to do is admit that you've sinned. 
Be willing to turn from a life of self and sin and turn and go toward Christ. He died for your sins. He was the substitutionary death. He died in your place. And so we have to trust him and we have to be willing to confess him openly before others. Whether we like it or not, we're in the shadow of the cross now. So we have to decide, what will I do with Jesus? I want you to stand with me. Would you stand and let's pray. Let's give a gospel invitation like we always do. And there may be someone here that's, they're not sure. They don't know for certain that they are born again, that they will be going to heaven to be with Jesus. You can know. That's why he came. That's why all these things were written in the word to, you know, Matthew and other gospel writers. They recorded it, you know, step by step, event by event. But you come as we sing this last song. Lord, we want to put this last song of invitation in your hands. Lord, I pray that you would draw those who don't have a personal relationship with you. Oh, Lord, thank you that you make us thirsty for that. And so, Lord, help people today to come to Christ who do not know him. Thank you for giving us the evidence. All the proof we need is right here before us. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.